of a mentality of casualty. They warn of no sickness or mortality. Pollution is 90% controlled, we are told. Fugitive emissions from smokestacks are few. Safe for living and breathing too. But what happens with the dangerous few? Get into our food chain ready for a chew. Dangerous chemicals amplify themselves by a millions to stay. To the top of the food chain, putting us in a harm's way. 90% reduction is not enough. And believe me, we will get tough. Pollution prevention provokes much fear of jobs and profit loss so straightforward. But so is the loss of the people I love so dear. Although it will take lots of dollars to change, from control to prevention, we can arrange it. But what about the casualty of the people who charge free? They will have no argument or job, you see. A poem by Bunyan Bryant called Argument about his experiences of environmental racism. In honor of Environmental Awareness Month, we will discuss environmental justice implications of corporate America and government, importance of zip code to evaluate health and understanding the future of environmental development. Hi, everyone. I'm Tapiwa. Welcome to the Hash It Out podcast. As you can tell, today we're going to be talking about environmental justice. I'm joined today with my co-host, Meha. Hey, how are you doing today? It's been hectic. Like I, yeah, I had a research conference over from like Thursday to Saturday and it was in Boston. And um, yeah, it's been a lot of traveling this month and had a lot of delay on Sunday. And I spent like six hours on the airport and I came back yesterday at like 4 a.m. And it's been very, oh, very, wow. yeah, it's it's been very, very hectic trying to get everything back. And I had like two papers due yesterday, which I thought I had halfway completed until I realized how much of a mind I work I had. But oddly, like I got everything done by 10.30. So I was very proud of myself. I like, I always feel like I get, when I get stressed out, I don't do well, but in reality, I do do well. Like I'm very resilient. That's what I learned. Under from that pressure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was great. But how how was your weekend? It's it's Halloween, dude. Yeah, I, I'm sure that. How, how was your Halloween weekend? You know, I didn't do anything. <laughs> I mostly studied, and um, I went to an event. It's called the Hundred Black Men of Indianapolis, and they were raising funds for. Um, young black men in the community so they can um, have education and specifically in STEM. Mm -hmm. So I was excited to um, represent my alma mater there. So that was kind of the highlight. I got to dress up and after so many, many, many months of not wearing anything but sweatpants and hoodies, like it was nice to look nice for once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, at the conference, actually, I met someone called Nicole Tisdale. She, okay. yeah, so she's basically, she sat on the 2020 presidential transition team. She She's part of the Cybersecurity National Council uh, at the White House. Oh, and wow. Yeah, she, yeah, she's a huge big deal. And uh, she was talking about like how everything has been and when the capital uh, January 6th the whole capital incident happened mm -hmm. she was literally living down that street and yeah it was it was quite amazing like how tech like we were talking about how technology interferes with violence in current society and the democracy itself of like countries around the world and 
I'm kind of excited for today's episode because my mind has been in like different places over the last like just four days and shifting it back to the environmental aspect because you know all of us are like products of the environment and whether it's physical emotional or mental and I'm kind of very excited to discuss today's learning and research that we both have worked on but um to begin with i i wanted to reflect back on a case or bring out an example out that happened about nearly 50 years ago so the night of january 9th 1972 about again 50 years ago a wall of water swept over rapid city south dakota at least 238 people had died and the flood had caused about 100 million worth of property damage by the next day native americans a minority in the city were dis uh, proportionately affected by the tragedy raising awareness and sparking a movement for environmental justice a topic at the center of today's politics on climate change so let's try to circle back to understand what is exactly environmental justice so the equal access to resources and protection from hazards resulting from non inhumane environment regardless of race gender sexual orientation or class are traditional definitions of environmental justice and sometimes its absence might be more conspicuous than its presence as in the case of the ongoing exposure to the contaminated water that has wreaked havoc in a predominantly black community of flint michigan journalist tim yogan from Lakota tribe recalled seeking a position in the rapid city the business reg- disregarded the application before focusing on him they told him that they don't hire anyone from the pine ridge in indian reservation through this discrimination whites in the rapid city carefully controlled where the native americans could live either by preventing them from obtaining well paying jobs that might lead to career advancement or by refusing to rent or sell to native americans outside of a small number of neighborhoods some of which were located directly in the flood plain of rapid Rapid Creek. That's true. The Flint water crisis reminds me of the criticism the country received after how they handled Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, which was a stark example of environmental racism. Environmental injustice began long before Hurricane Katrina ever hit in the basic pattern of settlement in the city. This was remarks by Eugene Robinson of the Washington Post at John Center's Never Again Forum in April 11, 2006. In many cities in the United States, minorities and specifically African Americans and Native Americans have been subject, subjected to living in harsh conditions. Access to clean water is a human right. and both the flint crisis and hurricane katrina there wasn't swift action to ensure that these locations had access to water according to the waterspread.com they interviewed a man named john a 44 year old from new orleans resident was in the superdome for 5 days and said of the experience it was a nightmare they weren't giving us a lot of water once in a blue moon they'd be a little shipment of water and the water shipment would be attacked by the people they were desperate for water everyone was dehydrated and they were afraid if they didn't get it they'd miss out on it because there were so many people there but yet there was little amounts of water so this whole um situation that you spoke of in rapid city definitely reminded me of what happened in katrina and how you know the pictures and images that they showed it was very shocking for america to see people without water with 
you know, even months after Katrina had happened, there were images where it looked like nothing had been done. None of the rubble had been moved. Um, A lot of the power lines and um, hazardous waste had yet to be removed. And that can really affect people's health overall. And I think it's just it's so sad to see that these crises still happen to this day. Every time there is a disaster, we see um, a clear evidence of the the separation between the low income and those who are in power and how they react. Um, Even in Texas, when the power lines, you know, went went out because there was snow um, and people didn't have power for days. You know, there were politicians that let, were able to leave and some even, you know, sent their families um, to a different country so that they could, you know, wait it out until Texas got um, relief again and got the power back. So we definitely see th- these examples of environmental injustice every single day, especially in the news and some that just don't get covered. Yeah, the uh, one thing about the Rapid City example was, you know, I read a lot of like I read a lot of argument around the fact that, oh, it has nothing to do with the race, color, or so and so. It's because like it's economic standards. Like they are poor, and hence like people in poor regions are facing these issues. But something that I really liked about the Rapid Cities and the way the whole case went out that it was very clear that there were white people who marginalized Native Americans. Like Mm -hmm. they made sure that these people don't enter certain areas. So it's not just so it's not just the economic aspect that comes into play over here. It's also people refusing to rent or sell to Native Americans, which makes them marginalized on one case. So it's an effective kind of like a cleansing or making sure that it's an effective discrimination that's taking place over here where a certain community is not allowed to buy a land or own a house in certain zip code where they have better resources or they they have better access to healthcare or just better amenities. Like the whole aspect of like when he submitted and the journalist submitted the application, he was told that, oh, we're not hiring someone from this region. It was very clear, like the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation is full of Native Americans. So there was a discrimination case right there for them not to hire him. And it it was very, like, it was very clear on how racism played throughout that entire case where they made sure that none of the Native Americans, like, got any well-paying jobs. So they made sure that they are below the poverty. So in order to make sure that they also don't, uh, aren't able to afford the houses that go on on the street. So it was a very like a cyclic collective effort that, oh, make sure they don't get the jobs, mm-hmm. make sure that they don't have enough wealth to buy the houses or even rent the houses in this area. So it was a very collective effort or a system rather in place to make sure that Native Americans don't flourish in the city itself. Yes, and I, you know, I read an article that was kind of coming off of that same example, it talked about how um, even during the pandemic of recent years, like when people were, you know, seeing that, you know, we weren't going to be going back to our jobs or being out and about, 
people started wanting to buy houses and rent started to go so high up and people couldn't afford it. And so minorities were being pushed into areas that didn't have resources um, or that had less resources. And then you find when we when you know you have a crisis that every one of this certain low income and even minorities are pushed and like you said aren't able to own land or buy. So who was the most most of the people renting were minorities and that rent went so high. So it's you can just see the clear um, negligence and of this country for minorities and those of low income. Yeah, yeah. That's something that makes me like like we do have these examples and effects of like horrible environmental racism examples that have gone in this country within the past few years but i think what what's more important that since these systems are in place and considering that this is a country that proudly calls itself democratic mm. like what is the response like let's try to understand what's the response of like the government officials as well as like the people who are responsible to you know find justice and make sure that everything is fair in the way it's being carried out within a system so with the respect to like the government's response in the rapid cities issue in the rapid cities case according to hazel bono of like united united renters council there's a discrimination in the rapid city against the minority groups notably the indians a rapid city advocacy organization like united renters council is a kind of an advocacy organization that helps uh, Native Americans in terms of voicing their issues and the environment racism that they have faced in Rapid City. So in an experiment that was conducted by her group, a white potential tenant was sent to view apartments and then a Native American tenant was sent out, like outright after. And according to her, the Indian tenant received nothing, but the white tenant got three possible places to live. Furthermore, city officials deliberately avoided making significant investments in low-income housing for flood victims in the favor of like revamping the downtown businesses. A new civic center soon kind of appeared right after and a flood memorial and a sizable parkland area around the creek also discouraged the additional construction in the floodplain. So the housing shortage in Rapid City only worsened in the following decades because a large portion of those flood relief funds were used for these upgrades rather than affordable homes for Native Americans. And like I was reading this uh, article by Washington Post and like the current situation as of like 2022, the rapid community has like a homelessness rate about three times higher than the national average. And a native, like Native Americans make the bulk of the individuals experiencing homelessness in that city. Like the fact that three times higher than the national average, like when the national average is already high in my opinion, like it just goes on to show that like nobody really cared about these voices. Like it was all for, like when when they invested like in terms of in the favor of like revamping the downtown businesses, it's very clear they all they cared about was like profits. And majority of these businesses were owned by white people because again, when we go back to the first point where these people did not allow Native Americans to have high paying jobs, let alone the matter of owning a business and a flourishing one that would like help them get out. So it was so clear that the system in place, even when the government so-and-so made decisions, like when they say revamping downtown businesses, it was very clear that 
They were just trying to help a bunch of white people get back from the flood. Mm. And, you know, it just upsets me when um, I think about, you know, the Native Americans because, of, you know, the history that's there. And I'm not going to get into all the history, but it's just they have, a, you know, reservations that have land that has been set aside mm-hmm. for them. Yeah. Um, and even that is they've given them land that isn't oftentimes um fertile soil it's oftentimes not in great areas where these reservations are um and like you said that's why there's a lot of homelessness there's not a lot of jobs in the area and some of these um corporate companies these industrial industries especially the oil companies they will go and start fracking oil from the native land so there's there's not even respect for the land that they've given quote unquote to the Native Americans, there's not even respect for that land because even after you said, okay, you can have this amount of land, they still want to go back and and ruin that land. And, you know, we all know the dangers of fracking, which is hydraulic fracking is distinct from conventional oil and gas drilling. Although both are problematic in terms of environmental degradation and potential public health risks, health risks, In conventional oil and gas drilling, a well is drilled in the rock formation. Oil and gas are pumped up from the rock depth and onto the surface. This can be very detrimental to the environment. Fracking allows oil companies to access hard-to-reach oil and gas and forcibly injecting a a slurry of water and chemicals together, and some of which can be toxic, so then they can't have access to clean water. Yeah. And it reminds me of in 1979, civil rights activists started turning their attention to environmental justice because there were concerns stemming from discriminatory placement of chemical plants and hazardous waste sites. This has been a common practice in the Gulf to place these sites near African-American residential neighborhoods. The toxic pollution of poisonous waste produced by these plants caused by high rates of cancer within the adjacent African-American communities. After emancipation, the end of the Civil War, this changed into a classic Southern pattern whereby whites forced African-Americans to reside in undesirable areas subjected to frequent flooding, unhealthy air and noise levels, as as well as unsanitary water and sewage conditions. That was taken from the book Environmental Justice Through the Eye of Hurricane Katrina. I noticed that the common pattern we've talked about with the lack of government relief when it comes to environmental justice, the same government that fails to acknowledge the effects and severity of climate change. What are some what are some things that we as people in the United States can do to prevent this from happening if the government can be slow to make effective change? Yeah, I think something that um, in terms of when we were discussing the previous points, like something that stood out to me the most was when government was making decisions in like both the cases, whether it's when I looked at the Flint water, uh, water crisis uh, mm-hmm. or whether it's Rapid City, it came up very clear that the money and the profit and the business were kind of the main priority when they made these decisions, when whether it's disaster relief and so on. And that's something that makes me like, it's it's obviously the main rooted idea of capitalist America in every which way you take any issue around the 
around the globe and right. america's responses will be around the money aspect of things but something that um, stood out kind of the most for me out of all of this was the whole idea of like corporate greed that comes out of this like the idea of exploitation because when you look at what makes a country is is it the money is it the business or is it like the people because you know like the aspect of like people their ideas and innovation so when these government officials or these city officials or whenever they're trying to make a decision around the like around these kinds of issues or disaster relief like how much percent of human resources or how much percent of like environmental activists are part of these conversations or have a seat at the table to give an opinion on this because like we are products of the environment and in many ways it's the people who make the country you know like i feel like it's just a land it's it's an ideology but how do we like for them not to like for them to prioritize business over people who are on the streets who don't have even basic resources such as like a roof over their head or like resources that gives a pretty good picture of these government officials and what their center ideology is when a disaster hits like they care far more about saving the business and making profits than again going back to that poem like they fuck if about profits their losses in terms of monetary restrictions that come into place then oh the chemicals that have gone post the disaster or whether it's the houses people have lost or the houses people didn't even have that we want to make sure that they do so it's it's very clear that even with the government or holding them accountable over there is that they don't give two cents about like all the cases that and all the examples that i've read like all the decisions that they've made i've rarely seen it being people focused like at all you're right i think you know like you said money is is such a driving force in our society and it's like until it affects money there may not be change and mm-hmm. until it affects and sometimes it's like even if if it affects people if it doesn't affect everyone it seems like no one cares like oh it's only affecting the native americans oh it's only aff- affecting minorities or low income people but if the people who have who are like the owners of these large cop- corporations or people who are living um in higher levels of income aren't being affected some people think it doesn't exist like climate change or environmental issues it's only until it gets to the point where the media i think takes charge or takes or like activists bring this to attention and then the media has no choice Mm -hmm. i think that's when like with flint um it had been going on for many many months if not years Um, before I even heard about it. I heard about it through Twitter. And then it was on Twitter for about maybe a month or two before it went, you know, in the news. So I think we have to reevaluate the power that we have as people um, to use our voice as much as possible and to make sure that we're voting for people um, that are going to actually, you know, make a change and to speak up about these environmental justices. 
Yeah, yeah. And with the aspect of money, it also brings me back to like the whole idea of ethical shopping. You know, like when because Ooh, it's also these a good one. yeah because it's always like these corporate greed that brings down the environmental aspect of things. So I was kind of reading a case as well as you know we have a great examples like when we talk about making effective change, we want to only since money is such an important thing to these corporations, like. if they don't make eco-friendly products or if they don't make sustainability as a part of their uh, mission or making sure that they're not harming someone nobody is going to buy their products like if we have ethical shopping in place as customers you know because nobody is forcing us to buy things like we have marketing in our face when we open social media and all those things but it's really who can you let play with your psychology in terms of what you want to buy and we have examples of like corporates trying to make the ethical and social responsibility for example adidas had this they launched this initiative i, I think like 5 or 6 years ago with respect to ocean plastic where um they collected all the ocean plastic or they have a they partner with an organization called parsley which it's a non-profit and that's also one thing that adds more credibility to these organizations when they partner with these non-profits who are willing to change and have a good reputation in, in the industry too for sustainable as well as for justice based environmental work and they had this initiative called uh, ocean plastic where they were basically going to use all the plastic from the ocean like collect it and use it to make their shoes as well as their clothes and oh, wow yeah and majority like it became a very successful initiative in itself but there were a good amount of like gray areas that were coming out of it because oh, okay we are kind of retrieving the ocean plastic and then changing it and making it better but it's not stopping plastic from getting dumped in the ocean like the the whole issue is yes it's helping like a top tier problem but the whole issue is why is the plastic even ending up in the ocean in the first place mm. so it's helping clean up the ocean in many ways but it's not really like the company is not doing to solve the root cause of the problem itself and germany like europe like when i look about around like all the countries around the world europe is one of the most like germany to be in particular is so highly known has a high reputation for sustainable like the companies itself and something that came off as shocking was in september about 2015 epa which is the us like environmental protection agency of protection and act I, i forgot the full form of it but basically they found that folk volkswagen which is like a huge automobile company like it's a german company and it's probably at that time it owned about 70% of the american automobile market um so they ended up like a lot of their they pride on themselves as like sustainable vehicles and so on but there were a bunch of researchers at university of west virginia who found out that there were actually defeat devices in their car models to defeat these emission tests that are done to test the sustainability of the car and basically they cheated the system like wow yeah yeah they cheated the emission test to make themselves more for the eco buyer and the more investigation took place um it was basically from a span of like the car models from 2009 to about uh, 2015 so there were about like 500,000 like 500k vehicles that were out there that were 
basically cheated on the emissions test so they were not as sustainable as they proved out to be oh. so it was like a fraud thing like so I'm, they created so basically the car was still producing emissions but the emissions that i mean the whatever the 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 test that they did to test if the emissions were coming out they were able to make it in a way that it was undetectable to that machine yeah they were able to cheat so they basically oh, had something called wow. a software like they had defeat devices in their uh in their cars to uh, to basically fool the regulators like cuz EU does the regulation mm-hmm. as well as USA does its regulation so they were they placed these defeat devices to cheat the software of detection and it was a huge crisis for Volkswagen and they still probably haven't gotten out of it like and the issue was the more and more they in like investigated the more and more EPA and um, SEC investigated they realized that everybody in the exec board knew like a bunch of engineers in 2009 or something brought this issue up to the CEO and they ignored it like the audacity of these people to get away and thinking that they will get away with this but they basically had to pay like 7 billion dollars worth of a fine out of it which but everybody on the board was fired people were replaced wow. but Volkswagen is a huge group like it's one of the most like it's 70% of the US market like that should tell you how big that company itself is like they own Porsche they own a lot of com- like sub companies even within them and then there's this aspect of like corporate dilemma you know like like we understand the corporate greed but are they really and you also lose the trust of the buyers because you're faking yourself to be an eco company when you're not and that makes me you know when we talk about making effective changes and like the aspect of ethical shopping it's it's something that reflects back to me is like how many of these companies are actually doing it because they want to do it for the environment or how many of them are just doing it to have more ethical stance to attract more eco buyers to their company and hence they make more money like do these exec boards even care about the environment or is it just like i'm pretty sure it's all just about making money for them i mean it has to be because you know the sad thing about the climate crisis is that when companies like that cheat the system we're only cheating ourselves because mm-hmm. everyone is impacted by climate change you know even though we're talking about environmental injustice as it pertains to zip codes and you know areas at the end of the day when we pollute one neighborhood we're polluting the world yeah. because we breathe the same air the emissions travel um and it's just unfortunate that you know when i see when i read articles about the things that we can do to fight the climate crisis that you know the amount of effort that each country should you know put in and how little we even want to do it's like it sets us back yeah and i just can only imagine what it's going to be you know 50 years from now if you know the generations to come like what what kind of climate will they be living in will everyone be living like how these like now how it's you know defined by zip codes and it's kind of um in these certain areas maybe one day all of us will be facing a flint crisis oh yeah 
Definitely. You know, and yeah. that's uh, that's tough. That's a tough pill to swallow. Oh yeah, like I w- um so going back to the zip code situation, like there are sacrifice zones that are based on environmental justice concept. That there are zip codes across the United States that are so polluted mm-hmm. that they're not safe to live in. So according to the Center of Health, Environment, and Justice, which is the C H E J, these zones must be sacrificed as they have suffered irreversible, irreversible environmental damage. In Texas, due to high concentration of uh, toxic industries like petroleum and fracking, there's a high likelihood that some of these most polluted zip codes are sacrifice zones. And these zones create extreme public health risk for those living in those zip codes. And according to the environmental justice theories, people who live in toxic regions are more likely to be low income and people of color. Like wealthier zip codes and populations with better access to health care uh, have low stress levels and reduced car traffic were less vulnerable to the adverse impacts from the heat and the ozone damage per research that was published by like National Academy of Sciences. And minorities disproportionately and systematically breathe more polluted air than white people in the United States. And this was conducted or this was found in a data by like April study in the Journal of Science Advances. Historically, racist housing practices have also left minority urban residents with a greater exposure to heat. Uh, Wealthier places tend to have more green space and more tree cover. The buildings aren't usually high rises, so they are not trapping as much heat and people will commute by walking or uh, biking. So there's less car traffic in the air. I think it's important to understand that we are products of the environment. I, I think I've, I've said it like third time throughout this episode, whether it's like physical, mental or emotional. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't know if it's like raining too much, like just for me, like forget the trauma that is there that I've learned through these examples. But if it's raining like the whole week, like I feel depressed. Like I feel like I don't want to go out. I just want to stay in and I just don't feel good about myself. And environment affects like my mental health or my mood so much that like the aspect of someone living in an area, breathing and the air that they do and the health implications, whether it's lung cancer or various airborne diseases that come with it, like the disproportionate impact of pollution is one example of a host of systematic issues facing people of color, low wealth communities and indigenous populations. And it's so it's so strange, you know, when we talk about zip codes, because while on my trip in Boston, we were walking through downtown and the one of the most, I, I think I went to Michigan, like, Detroit last last weekend and I saw a cop car in like literally every street but in Boston I did not see any cop cars I was just like right. like mm-hmm. I was walking through downtown with like a couple of friends and yeah I like genuinely I was looking for cop cars like where are the cars and I like yeah I did not see any of them as much as it was so prevalent in Michigan when I was traveling over there and I remember walking down the street like I was telling you earlier the the houses over there oh no I I don't think I mentioned it to you so I was walking through the it's called Columbus Avenue in Boston and oh my god it's like these fancy brick houses yes and it's it's like three or four streets and they are like historic houses so they are 
they're kind of go back and they're owned by all white families when i look at it like when i was looking at like the racial diversity in that place the percentages were a little disappointing or if not more and pretty much i think me and the other two girls were the only people of color i saw on that street i i had some like white people with me but we just like i was going past and you know those are, like you know the rich people are living in there where they don't have curtains like they want you to see how fancy their house, house is, is right. when they have like the mercedes g yeah when they have the mercedes g wagon and they had like halloween decorations to like max like i've never seen someone like they had huge i'll i'll show you the pictures but they had like this huge like skeleton in the yard like standing with like like you could see the amount of wealth by just the way they decorated their house and the cars that were stood outside their houses and that made me realize like when i was looking when we were, because we were looking at the map or like what is where because we want to see like all the clubs that are nearby and um or any hospital that's nearby and so on and hospital clubs pharmacies were about 2 minutes of like a radius in that neighborhood and it was a very wealthy and had so much of resources with it and that made me kind of realize because th- those the average house cost in that neighborhood was like 2 million dollars so even if you are a person of color you have to be like probably super like rich or have a really well paying job, job to right. afford just rent let alone afford like actually buying the house and it, it sort of reflected me back to like wealthier populations and the zip code situation itself because there was no pollution it was like all trees surrounded it, it looked like a most like magical you know out of the te- like the books that you read when you're like stories or magical neighborhood you walk like fall is like it looked so environmentally like peaceful to be over there and I was just amazed by how the differences I saw like walking like 20 minutes away from that neighborhood how different a neighborhood was where people were just there were a lot of pollution you could like with the there is the car traffic the gas that comes with it and everything like almost the air was like non breathable but yeah like the whole aspect of how zip codes define your health like I could not like that was the true example in front of my eyes right there like in terms of how this like analogy even though there might be people who might not agree to it or may agree to it was so real right in front of my eyes and even if we look in Indy like Meridian Street oh my god like some of the fancy houses I've ever seen in my entire life and yeah like the whole com- coming back to the aspect of like the impact of population like pollution i'm sorry being like in one of the examples for these systematic issues it makes it very clear that where you live is very much defining everything about your body yeah i you know it's int- you brought up so many good points um well my brother is a social work major and so during the summers he does a lot of um social work internships and things like that. So this past summer he did one for an organization um on the northeast side and it is a big food desert over there and one of the um directors of the program was telling him that you know a lot of the kids don't have, you know, sometimes higher aspirations in their, you know, in the neighborhood because they look around and you know the 
the place hasn't been kept up. The streets are cracked. The sidewalks are cracked. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when there's an issue with the power line or something, it's not fixed quickly. And I just think of like how you said that, you know, that neighborhood that you went to, they're able to keep the windows open and like the you know you can the curtains are open and you can see everything there are no curtains no curtains yeah no so yeah so they have no curtains you can see into the house and i'm thinking of the um, comparison to the neighborhood that my brother served in where if you even have like a flower on your porch or anything that could bring attention to your porch like you could possibly be robbed like you don't yeah. want to have anything mm. um so it just you know, it, it's a reminder of how where you live, like you said, it impacts what you see and even the beauty that you get to experience in yeah. your environment. They're not keeping up with the bushes. They're not cutting the tree branches when they fall or when they're about to fall. Um, and if you live in that, you're you're going to be, you know, down and think like this is it or, there, you know, you don't even think there's anything better than that. And, you know, it's just and traveling is a you know, it's a great way to see those things yeah. for sure yeah no I, I remember like I walked in that neighborhood and normally I would be like I want to live here but I was just in awe of like how much of wealth would these people carry and what kind of jobs they would have to afford this but then I was talking to one of the ladies at like the it was a research conference and they took us to a museum after the conference and I was talking to the lady over there and she said like oh if you go to this like this uh, street you will see a lot of historic houses brick houses over there and like I realized that oh damn okay I, I thought initially there would be like boring but as soon as I walked in that neighborhood I'm like And it's probably old money, like generational oh, yeah. wealth. Really yeah. old. And the streets were so clean compared to some of the other streets that I walked on. Like everything Ugh, isn't was that amazing. Yeah. Like, everything was so posh. Everything was so clean. You would have felt like you were in like some uptown, upper east, like New York kind of uh, vibe, vibe. Yeah. Yeah. But it was yeah. But Boston is always a different it's a different vibe over there. Um and like when I think of, you know, like you said, the streets being different, like, have you ever been on one side of Indianapolis and then you're driving yeah, and then you I you swear. can feel the road is smooth. And then all of a sudden you're just like hitting all these pockets. <laughs> yes. Funny. Yes. Yeah. That, that, that always I'm like, you know, because you know that you're in a neighborhood where obviously they haven't been paid attention to mm-hmm. while you're driving because you start noticing like, why are the roads so bad? Like, why am I, like, why is my ass hurting so much? Like, it, it just, it, it makes you realize that, damn, okay, like, I, I see the disparity. And it's like those small things that make you realize how unfairly these neighborhoods have been treated and mm. how these people have suffered, like, having any form of equal enforcement from the government or from the city itself. And, yeah, like, uh I, I think you were going to uh, I think you were mentioning something about the air quality or like the air pollution. Yeah. So I was reading an article and, it, you know, you brought up air pollution and I thought about um, how this book was talking about how African-American children had a higher chance for asthma because of the neighborhoods that they lived in um, had more exposure to toxins in the air because of they were putting plantations or these hazardous sites where they were doing industrial um, manufacturing 
near these neighborhoods. And, you know, it became a generational problem because the, the scientists would do research and they would come to find out that black children are twice as likely to be hospitalized for asthma and are four times as likely to die from asthma as white children. And that was from the EPA.gov. The complexity of the roots of asthma disparities demanded a multifactorial, multilevel, and indisciplinary approach. It makes me wonder how they could allow this to go out of hand for so long. It impacts the physical health of children. Depending on where you live will impact the fate of your access to clean air and water, which is unacceptable. Yeah, yeah. As much as like the uncertainty sort of surrounds the environmental contaminant, health dangers as like any public issue, we may argue that we do have like with these examples that we discussed right now, we have like a wealth of knowledge and something resembling like an expert agreement on some topics. Mm -hmm. But like our ability is severely uh, constrained on some of these issues and is unlikely to be like fully comprehensive. In the recent article by the New York Times, EPA officials and environmental justice campaigners frequently discuss the multiple cumulative and synergistic risk uh, pertinent to the communities of color experiencing several potential ecological and other health stresses at once. So I think like when we talk about even the aspects of zip codes and the earlier question that we proposed on how we can effectively change that or try to make a generation that's more environmentally justice, even though like sometimes I feel like I'm such a tiny part of the system in order to defeat the system that is so racial. But like then I realize if it's a collective effort, then it's like an effort of everybody who's coming in the way. And with the aspect of in terms of like, oh, how to fight um, the how to fight or make a more equitable environmental action, we can think about sort of advocating for like a systematic change, whether it's speaking out against any uh, corporate um, entities that are out there, suggesting any social responsibility that comes with it. One thing that I would suggest is like ethical shopping. That's one way to make sure that, you know, one person not buying something probably won't make a difference. But if thousands of people don't buy a company's product because the company has made an effort to make it more sustainable or has a history of environmental racism in their production, then that will make them like force them to take a step out there and right. like making environmentalism more of like a communal practice and not just like a activist contest, you know, out there. Yeah, like, like who can get the, the, the brand the most cancelled or something like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, like I was talking, I remember like I have heard a lot of people say, oh, climate change is just not my thing or is not my issue. I'm like environment is your issue you live in an environment like what wow. happens to the environment around us is very much everybody's issue like like I, I had someone walk up to me and be like I don't understand climate change like because I was talking to a good amount of people in like even at the conference as well as so far with my friends and it's like oh climate change is like really complicated or it's been complicated by the media and so on I'm like all you have to do is just care about the environment around and be more conscious of how you're impacting it and how it reverses back to you. Like that's that's really all it is about, at least for me. And 
like whether you believe or not in climate change just to give you a good example of how, how bipolar indies climate has been for the last two weeks where we have i think it would snowed sometime like a week ago or something like a little snow and then we had a humid like hot few days and then we had rain and then we had like a bit of calm and now we have humid and rain again and that can give you a good example of how like patterns climate patterns change so abruptly so when i say that with with due respect to anyone has a who has a bipolar disorder but indies weather is very very bipolar with the aspect of how things like move just shift from one day to the other and that has very much to do with climate change and how humans treat the climate itself and it's so much more important to raise awareness and learn more about environmental racism because like social justice and environment go hand in hand like our sort of our efforts in terms of we can't just do one thing and like do one thing and not do the other like both of them need to go hand in hand now more than ever because environment is something that's you know it takes years to build and it has been damaged and it's going to take years to build to even make it better by a slight chance and i just think our generation is so cynical like even i'm cynical so I I just hope that people take that effort out there. And if you're interested in learning more about environmental justice, um IUPUI has the Center of Earth and Environmental Science and they do water research and that uh, that department is also called the Seas Department. They also are having a, an event and I wish by the time that you, you all are listening this event would have already happened but i just wanted to mention it because it shows that iupy does have things um as it pertains to environmental justice they're doing on november 1st they're doing an environmental justice wikipedia edathon with iupy and iu and they're partnering with iu bloomington wells library and again it's uh november 1st i know that this episode wouldn't would uh wouldn't be out um by the time this event art is going to happen it the event would have already happened by the time this this episode comes out but IUPUI is definitely dedicated to having um you know environmental justice be at the forefront of the education here along with environmental research in the seas department yes yeah i completely agree i think like our university understands the benefit of uh, benefits of like native biodiversity and we have an organization or iup has something called urban gardens and they do their volunteering i think every friday from 9 to 12 and they have prioritized like the planting of native plant species in new landscape areas and um, they want to hold like a yearly tree plant with the goal of reaching about 28% of the canopy cover for campus so they are doing a lot of great things and i'm pretty sure your help will always be appreciated so you can just search iupeg uh, urban gardens and uh, from my remembrance like they have like a garden service volunteering on fridays from 9 to 12 so if you want to contribute to that or join uh, or help them out in some way that would be I think they they would really appreciate it. So that's that's all from us today. Thank you for listening to us. Don't forget to tune into our previous and future episodes. Thank you for joining us today and I hope you have a great day and great night whenever you hear this episode. But thank you and see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.